Much has been touted about the use of big data analytics to predict fraud trends, the potential for fraudulent activity, and the likelihood fraud on or across specific accounts associated with specific customers will occur. But how accurately is big data analytics actually being used today? In this interview with Gary Warner, Director of Research in Computer Forensics at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, Warner explains how big data analytics is being used to analyze malware and shore up social media and email security. My question for Gary, as big data analytics finally reaches a point of maturity, will security information and event management software products, also known as SIMS, be replaced with solutions driven by big data analytics? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. Well, first and foremost, hi, Gary. It's been a while since you and I have spoken. Thank you for joining me today. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Tracy. And before we jump into some of the specifics surrounding fraud prediction and prevention within the realm of big data analytics, Gary, let's talk about some of the overarching themes that you're seeing in some of your research. At this point, I kind of almost feel like big data is an overused term. How should we define big data analytics today and how should we qualify its use relative to fraud? Well, I think that's an interesting question. The main patterns that we're seeing with fraud is that although we're still seeing the the big malware-driven attacks, we're seeing more and more targeted attacks, things that are really crafted to get past the big data defenses that we've put up. You know, everyone has a URL blocker that's looking for malicious URLs in their email. Everyone has stronger border guards to stop those things that are well known to be malicious, but we're seeing many attacks now that are, are custom written for a particular target audience, perhaps a single company, perhaps even a single person. And those uh, catch-alls that are being based on patterns that have been observed in other attacks don't really seem to work so well on those one-off attacks. So that that's one thing that we're seeing. The second thing that we're really seeing is that there are new types of attacks specifically targeting financial institutions. And a lot of these are being crowdsourced in ways that we haven't seen before. So you remember, Tracy, when we talked about Zeus several years ago, most of the Zeus money mules were actually Europeans who had come over to the United States on a J-1 visa and were being used to set up bank accounts. A big trend we're seeing now is money mule networks with thousands and thousands of people in them who are being recruited on social media. So you're familiar with the dating apps and the romance scams where people will pretend they're in love with someone and then convince them to do financial deeds for them. It's like that only uh, on a much broader scale than we've ever seen before. So the patterns where a, a money mule is often caught through repetitious use of the same devices to do fraud now these money mules are more or less disposable because there's so many thousands of them and each one may only do one or two financial transactions at a single brand before moving on to target another financial institution. That's an interesting point, Gary. So just to kind of expand there a bit, then tracking some of these money mules on social media, as has been done in the past, isn't really as effective anymore. Well, that's right. When you have someone who's more or less a career mule, their repeated association with known criminals is part of what shows up in the social media analysis. But when you have someone who posts a message that says, who wants to make $4,000, send me a direct message. Well, that may actually be the only interaction between that mule and any criminal element. 
It used to be that the criminals would gather almost like criminal watering holes, if you could imagine, where they would be coming to a group that is dedicated to cybercrime. And of course, we still see that. There's thousands of online forums dedicated to cybercrime, hundreds of Facebook groups. But a lot of these um, more disposable mules don't really associate in those places. They're just searching for a hashtag on Instagram and finding an opportunity to make a few hundred bucks real quick. This is great, Gary, because I did want to talk about some of the malware trends that you're seeing and, and how big data is being used. And so this kind of ties in with that. Let's let's expand there a bit. So can you talk a little bit about how big data then is being used to predict some of these phishing attacks or the likelihood that malware is, is being spread through a phishing attack and perhaps even how effective maybe a phishing attack will be? Because it sounds like what's been done in the past isn't working now, and some of the things that we've been doing to track money mules, for instance, aren't as effective. So where is big data kind of stepping in to fill that gap? Well, where big data is still fantastic is for those larger botnet-based activities. So when, for example, there's a spam botnet that's just reawakened called Neckers, you know, and everyone all of a sudden saw the, a huge spike in their spam last week, that was the Neckers botnet coming back online. Well, the Neckers botnet is going to send out billions of emails each day, some of which have malicious URLs in them. Those type of URLs are easily blocked by these traditional SIMs where someone reports the URL as bad. Now everyone knows that URL is bad and everyone benefits from the, you know, the knowledge of the community. So we still do see strong uh, usefulness for those types of things. What we're looking at now in big data solutions is how do we harvest the knowledge of the crowd where those smaller attacks, something that's maybe only impacting a handful of users, can also be noticed and put together. If, for instance, uh, the report phishing button in FishMe's tool, you click that report phishing button, that report, if it's going back to FishMe, now FishMe is aware of that attack, even if it was a pretty customized attack, and they can scan, you know, there's 10 million people with that button on their desk. All of those people can benefit from one person having reported it. So a lot of times what we're seeing now is that those could be useful even in, the, in your own network. So in that example with the reporter button, if 10 people report to the central security, hey, I've got a suspicious email here, even if nothing catches it, the human reporter is very reliable in many cases and that human report can alert the network and what we're really looking at there is being able to cut down dwell time if there's a malicious attack on your network and it only affects a few people but no one knows it's there you've got to wait for a tool to recognize the behavior that's where you see mandiant and others saying we have these dwell times of you know 142 days between the point of infection and someone discovering it well, enabling more reporting from those people who may be victims of a more targeted attack is one way that we're seeing a, a new application of big data in this space. So, Gary, let's go back to my, my question from the introduction then. Will SIMs be retired as big data security solutions come of age? I think we're always going to have a use for them because there's always going to be people who will still fall for those mass attacks. And wherever we have those mass attacks uh, where we can catch things with DNS patterns, I mean, if you look at things like, you know, open DNS, um, where some of the research that they've been doing over there is looking for patterns of traffic to command and control structures of, of 
you know, major botnets, um, when they notice those patterns, the DNS protection can be pushed out and help everyone. The does the SIM interact with that? Well, in a lot of ways, it does. You know, a lot of times the place that the company receives those types of alerts still is coming into the SIM, and that ability to combine the threat intelligence that's coming into the SIM with the log event management that a lot of SIMs do uh, is still where you're going to be able to hunt for incident response. So while we may not see as much proactive warning, it's still going to be critical to have the SIM in place to be able to do that incident response type work. Once we recognize what is the bad thing we're looking for, now we need a way to effectively crawl the entire logs of the organization to find where did that or have we encountered that in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I'm just curious to know, do you see organizations effectively or adequately kind of marrying um you know, what they're getting from big data analytics and then tying that to incident response connected to the SEM. I honestly believe that that's probably one of the most effective uses of the SEM, mm -hmm. um, where a lot of times it, they're still being sold as we can use them for network defense. But um, a lot of times, again, those custom attacks, once something gets into your network, the most important thing is to be able to recognize everyone who's impacted by that event. Um, and so, having a single place to concentrate all of the logs of the organization, which is one of the roles the SIM plays, is still going to be critical. Even if it's not in a stop the attack, the responding to the attack is, I think the SIMs are always going to have a role in that place. And then let's go back to talk then about big data, you know, going back to what I mentioned um, in the introduction as well. We've been talking about big data for a long time. It hasn't really been something that's been probably used as effectively as it could have been in the past, but have we finally reached a tipping point, Gary? Do we see now, for instance, that having too much data isn't necessarily as much of a worry as it used to be because of solutions provided from companies like Splunk? You know, have we kind of gotten over or solved the problem of, of having too much data? Yeah, I, re I really think we've, we've got such better storage than we had five years ago, even. The cost of storage has come down, the cost of uh, processing that much information especially as people are using, uh, you know, cloud and GPU-driven processing. I, I think we're really starting to be able to handle the volume. We still have the problem, though, of the false alarms. You know, so the, the problem is that the, the, as we're going through that data, we're going to have a list of things that then need to be evaluated. And that's where we're still struggling with keeping up with the big data. It's no longer the processing power do I have enough space to keep all of the logs I might need? Or do I have enough memory to index all the logs that I might possibly need? Now the problem is still when I present those alarms to a human, do they do we have enough humans to go through all of those alarms and determine what we should do with that information? That's still the choking point that we're dealing with. You know, all the way back to, you know, the the target breach when they were scolded for, you know, not responding to a malware alert. And the analysts say, well, but we get 10,000 of those a day. How would we have known that those two were something special? Um, that's still where we have to fix the problem. And honestly, I really think that's the place where machine learning has the opportunity to really still make a future impact. I think we're going to have to still come up with smarter ways to sort through that noise to figure out what are the things that are critical events that we must respond to immediately and what are the things that are safe to ignore. Unfortunately, we, we're dealing with alarm fatigue still, and the big data makes it worse. 
so Gary, let's talk a little bit about machine learning then. What would be some specific examples of how machine learning could have an impact there to improve? Well, you know, we, uh, I, I know that Watson still has a way to go, but it, things like IBM Watson are trying to make sense of how do we sort out the false positives from the true ones. The idea is what is the human going to do when they get that alarm? How is the human going to evaluate that alarm to determine whether that's an actionable alarm? And as we can train the machine based on how the humans actually process those alarms, they can begin to learn which are the, you know, can, can the machine replicate those steps? Can the machine evaluate thousands of previously evaluated alarms and figure out what are the characteristics that made something actionable instead of ignorable? Um, that's the space that we need to be focusing on. And I think, you know, some of the new projects from Google and Microsoft and, you know, again, of course, IBM, Watson are all going to play into that space. But it's an area that's hot for research right now. I'm not sure that we have developed and shipping solutions, but it's certainly, I think that's, that's how we're going to solve the alarm fatigue problem. And when it comes to alarm fatigue, Gary, you mentioned Target. Um, I, I, that could take us into a whole nother discussion, right? So I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole too far. But do you see industries, do you see differences in industries? I mean, for instance, in the healthcare space, do you see healthcare using big data as effectively as it could to predict ransomware trends? Or do you see financial services kind of leaping ahead where big data is being used to help predict some of these backward phishing attack trends? Yeah, unfortunately, in the in the sector by sector comparison, what we see really quickly is that there are sectors who are spending woefully inadequate budget on security solutions and healthcare is a is a prime area. I've been doing a lot of work with healthcare on uh, specifically on ransomware. In fact, uh, I'm here with Dark Tower this week because of a healthcare event we're working on on Friday. Um, the the issue though that we're seeing is that in certain sectors we're seeing ridiculous amounts of data breaches. So for example, there's a report that comes out the Prodenus breach barometer is telling us that we're averaging more than one healthcare data breach per day. And in these data breaches, unfortunately, there's no one who's gathering the lessons learned and helping them understand the patterns. In a healthcare conference I just spoke at, I pointed out to them, I said, when, when I talk to the big banks, what they tell us is we have to spend this much money on security because we're protecting people's money. And I told them, I said, isn't it sad that the people who are protecting people's lives don't take the problem as seriously? And I said, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to wake up the healthcare industry until we truly have a cyber attack that's killing people, until people are dying from cyber attacks. Um, so what, what we see in healthcare, no one has the SIM maturity or the incident response maturity as we see in finance or even as we see in big retail. Target was a wake-up call for big retail. Everyone is up their spend on cybersecurity and incident response, but we haven't seen that corresponding pattern on the healthcare side. This is probably a conversation we could have in another six to 12 months to see if things do change. You would think that breaches like the Anthem breach would be enough to be a tipping point, but I guess not. No, unfortunately, the truth is that most healthcare organizations are struggling financially and they just can't justify the spend right now. What we may see change that is as Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights mm -hmm. has the duty to enforce HIPAA violations, 
And one of the things that we're seeing is that HIPAA's guidelines are saying that if you have a ransomware incident, that is a data breach unless you can prove 100% that it was not. Well, those healthcare organizations don't have the right monitoring in place to be able to provide that proof. So the idea is that if I can encrypt data on your network, then I had control of that data, which in the HIPAA guidelines, if a foreign entity has control of your data, that's a breach. Mm-hmm. And so what, what's happening now, uh, uh, when you look at the enforcement actions of OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, with regards to HIPAA, they're actually processing claims from 2014 right now. Wow. So that since the things that we saw with ransomware really didn't pick up in a heavy way in healthcare until 2016, we still may have in another year before HIPAA violations start being processed with regards to ransomware. Once OCR starts levering those million-dollar fines that I believe fully are coming, I think that's really going to be a wake-up call for the healthcare organizations. Well, Gary, I'd like to thank you for your insights and your time today. As always, very informative, and I've enjoyed talking with you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you as well, Tracy. Again, we've just heard from Gary Warner of the University of Alabama at Birmingham. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten. Thank you for joining us.